We are back for a midweek Bible study in 2 Corinthians. We'll be in chapters 3 and 4. We're going to move a little bit faster now because there's some repetition here. But I, I would invite you to read it. It's not a long book, and it won't take you long. And as we hit the high points, you're going to want to go back in and fill in some of the gaps yourselves. This is perhaps the most personal, revelatory books Paul wrote. And it, he just shows his heart, as we saw last week. He's just pouring himself out, trying to show them, no matter what they've said or done about him, he is going to love them. Even if he has to correct things, he's never going to let them go. And he's always trying to treat them in, with respect and dignity as fellow believers in Christ. As we read here, we have to read backwards because we're reading somebody else's mail and we only have a few of the letters and they're all replies. We don't have the original letters or reports to Paul. So reading this book, especially 2 Corinthians, we have to read it and say, what is he responding to? Good news is most of the time it's fairly obvious. <clears throat> For example, that chapter three that we saw where he had to keep saying, no, I don't need to provide letters to you. You know my life. But what about chapter four? He says, we have this ministry. We do not lose heart. Rather, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. So now we're able to say somebody in Corinth is saying that Paul is deceptive and that he is distorting the word of God. I can remember very well reading passages out of First John to a, a group of ministers. And one of the ministers, red-faced, leaned forward and pointed and said, you are distorting the word of God. And I said, no, sir, I'm reading it. And I showed him I was just reading it. But because I didn't say, yes, it says this, but four books over another author writing to a different group of people in another town, says this, therefore what you say, this, well, well, what John said in this particular one, John the Apostle said that he can't possibly have meant it because of this other writer who, it, either you just take it as written or you don't. You don't, when I say that, I don't mean you have to believe every single word. No, I'm not, I'm not going to put that burden on you. I'm not going to, you know, about you know planting the crops or what kind of striped goat could go with what speckled goat. I'm, we're not going to do that, right? What I'm saying is either you believe Paul was trying not to distort the word of God and just you know he's just saying what it says. We can differ on interpretations, and we will, because we're human beings. We come from different places. Paul saying don't call me deceptive and don't say I'm distorting things merely because we're in disagreement. He goes on the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, hey, go for it. Have a look. And it seems to have been a, a, a charge against Paul that what he said was more mysterious or mystery religion, veiled, esoteric. And so he says, no, if if what we are saying seems to be veiled to you, just be aware, and he uses this phrase, the God of this age has blinded you. 
so that you cannot see what we are plainly saying. The God of this age. Well, is he talking about Satan? Well, certainly you know, Satan or demons are going to be involved with this. But the God of the age when Paul was around could mean one of two things to most hearers. One is the Roman emperors, and they were the worship, the godlike worship of the emperors was everywhere on the coins, sporting events, uh, post what we would call billboards today. Uh, it was part of everyday gatherings. You can go back and listen to my series I did last year on the book of Revelation, and you, you get an awful lot uh, of talk about that. But the other god of this age is our culture. And we must always be aware that our culture is much better at evangelizing us than we are at evangelizing our culture. And while we may feel that we have held truth uh, firm and uh, we, are, we are telling it to our neighbors, we also need to be aware that the culture of our age creeps into us as well. And therefore, I have people whose religion is wrapped up around uh, the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, or it's wrapped around the vaccinations, or it's wrapped around the don't do it, uh, and they cannot separate because the God of this age has blinded their eyes. When all we need to know is just keep looking for the truth, and when we get it wrong, keep looking again. We, we stumble forward. We're, faith is Faith is not by sight. That's why it's faith. So we will be stumbling. But what Paul is teaching here, he's saying, this isn't hidden. Open your eyes. See this. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And then he says, just shine. Just let the light shine out of the darkness. And he put that shining in our hearts so that it will shine out and show the world who Jesus is. Once again, Jesus is going to be shown by our love, not by our law. Oh, we have law. We have restrictions on our behavior, but that's not what will call people to us. It has to be love. And then he says, but you know, while you're making all these accusations against us, we have to also admit that this great treasure that God has given us is put in jars of clay. That's his expression for humans, susceptible to defects, faults, breaking, cracks, messes. Paul's being very open, saying, listen, I'm doing the best I can. I'm, I'm teaching what I received from Christ. But if there's a problem here, you need to be aware. Um, we are jars of clay. And the power that we show is not from us. It's from God. And then uh, this, this next passage is, uh, is many people's favorite passage, and you can see why. Verse 8, chapter 4. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. That sounds like a good soldier, doesn't it? Sounds like a good mom. Sounds like a good dad. Sounds like a good neighbor. Sounds like a good leader. Let's do this. He says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Uh, he's going to get into talking about resurrection again as he ended 1 Corinthians talking about. This seems to be a continuing 
perplexing issue for the people in, in Corinth. So he's going to come back to it. He's going to do it in ways that make sense in their language, but not necessarily in ours. So carrying around the death of the Lord Jesus in our bodies. We're still with that jars of clay um, metaphor. We carry our death with us because we believe in eternal life. We're not afraid, is what he's saying. We're not afraid because we're not going to die. The body is going to fall aside, but it's just a jar of clay. We carry around the death of Christ in us. What does that mean? Well, Christ is the one who defeated death. So we're not afraid. The champion is with us. Because we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Um, there are actually a couple ways to go at this little thing. Some people believe that that was <clears throat> intended to be a stinging in the tail. Hey, we're going through it. We're being persecuted. We're being thrown into prison. We're being accused of this, that, and the other. But our, while we die, death is at work in us so that life is at work in you. In other words, you got a lot easier than Paul. And it's very easy to sit in the stands and criticize the player on the field. You know, Teddy Roosevelt wrote an amazing poem about that. And uh, Rudyard Kipling, uh, um, Kipling wrote uh, If, that was somewhat about this as well. But the critic's job is super easy. They don't have to make a movie. They don't have to write a play. They don't have to do it. All they have to do is criticize what somebody else has done. And Christians, sadly, have majored in that skill set through the last 2,000 years to sit about and criticize what uh, others do rather than do. Go, go show us how to do it better by living that kind of life. He says, it is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. That's out of the Psalms. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. And all of this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Did you notice there? Even, though, even when he does some digging and some defensiveness, he goes, when we are presented to Christ, we will be presented to Christ with you. He never questions their salvation. He never allows there to be a break in fellowship, despite all that they have done and all the mess that they are. We could learn from Paul. He goes, therefore, do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal victory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but the unseen is eternal. I may have told this story before, so I'll be very quick. I was learning how to fly. It was a little two-seater airplane. And there always comes that time when you, uh, it's, it's almost, I don't know, it, it's, it's, it's almost like a liturgy among the, um, the private pilot set. There's this whole procedure that you'll be out one day and you're practicing landings and takeoffs and you circle the airfield, you fly the pattern 
and you come back in and then you do it again. And then at some point you're going to land. And all of a sudden the pilot who's been teaching you, your CFO, will all of a sudden just look at you and say, um, uh, all right, take it around. And he steps out uh, or she steps out and you get now to solo. I was getting really close and I was thinking today's the date. So we're flying the pattern and he goes, all right, land it. And as we're coming in, we're floating a bit. It means you're not really going down. Planes really like to stay in the air if given any chance. And so he, he said, no, full power, go around. We did this a few times and I was getting frustrated with myself, but I was doing everything I knew how to do. And he finally, he looked over and goes, oh, I see what you're doing wrong. I'm, you know, great. We've been burning petrol in the air now for about an hour or two. I'm getting tired. And he said, you're looking down. And I looked at him and I said, down's where I'm going. I'm wanting to go down. That's what, that's the very definition of landing actually is to once again, be on the land, which is of course, below us. He said, you don't look, you don't look down. You look where you want to end up. And he had to go through it again. You don't look where you want to touch down. You look where you want to end up. He said, look at the end of the runway. Well, to me, this made zero sense and just meant that he was a complete idiot, frankly. And I'm sorry to tell that to you. I'm sure that his, his wife loved him despite that mental deficiency. And then it turned out he was right. If I looked at the other end of the runway, not the one where I wanted to touch down, but the other end, the far end of it, where I wanted to be when I was done, every landing agrees to. I've learned that if I look about the things of my life, it, it gets overwhelming. So keep your eyes where you want to end up. You, you've heard people say, dress for the job you want. Uh, well, keep your eyes where you want to end up. Don't put your eyes in other places. I think that's, it's a brilliant chapter. It's a very short chapter. Chapter five, he goes talking about that body and the falling away of the body again. He goes, and we know that this earthly tent, all right, but we were a jar now we're a tent, but we understand this is destroyed. We have a building made from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. So it's, it's going to be an upgrade. No matter what happens, our, our death is going to be an upgrade for those who follow Jesus. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we'll not be found naked. Now, here's where most of the sermons I've heard on this spoke truth, but not this particular point Paul was trying to make. They would say, well, our earthly tents, in there we groan, we get older, we get tired, we get arthritis, we get, you know, I, I could beat that dead horse, but you understand. Absolutely true. Um, you know, it's certainly happening to me. It's a, you can, you can look and it's a slow motion train wreck <laughs> every morning when you look in the mirror going, wait a minute. The, the peak was some time ago, frankly, and now we're on the long downward one, which is not depressing if you understand what he's talking about. And he's not talking here about bones because he says, then we will not be found naked. What? Um, 
I remember when my father was taken, his body was taken to be cremated. And they asked me, what do you want me to do? What do you want us to do with his clothes? And I said, if they are worth donating, donate. But if not, just throw them away. And so I sat there um, filling out forms. And then they brought in this little bag, um, cloth bag, and a little tie at the top, like you uh, would see for some jewelry stores or uh, if you're a whiskey drinker, I've seen Crown Royal bottles with that little uh, purple thing. They brought this little felt bag to me and, and I was going, you know, I open it up and all it was is my father's wedding ring. And my thought flashed back to here, you know, we are naked. But that's not the kind of nakedness he's talking about. He's talking to people who know their Old Testament because that is their scripture. Uh, the other scriptures had not been written yet. Paul was writing. Some writings were going on, but when they say scripture, they mean the Old Testament. So when he says, then we will not be found naked, everybody thinks of Adam and Eve. Whenever they sinned and rebelled, God went to the garden to look for them and goes, where are you, Adam? And he goes, well, we're hiding. Why are you hiding? Because we are naked. And God says, who told you you were naked? We are not naked before Father, our Father. We have nothing to be ashamed about. That's what he's saying. We have nothing. And he's, when he says we, he's talking about Corinthians. You're saved this way as well. Don't go around pointing out the faults in others. Because when you're naked, it's kind of hard to, to, to not notice your own faults. Unless you're just a narcissist, I guess. Uh, which, uh, and I've never understand those that want to do massive workouts and then show their muscles on Facebook. And I'm thinking, you know, one of these days it's going to be a Facebook memory <laughs> and you're not going to feel so good. Uh, now the one who's fashioned us for this very purpose is God. You were designed by God to live with God without fear, naked and unashamed. That's why he made, and what's God doing? He is bending the universe to get us back there. And through Jesus, we now have a path. And the Holy Spirit will drive us there. We, we will be saved because he said we will. God's not content with us hiding in shame in the garden. Therefore, we're always confident. And know that as long as we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with God. So we make it our goal to please him. Paul, um, Paul may have had some serious sin issues in his life, if you read Romans 7 and elsewhere. Uh, there, was, there was some sort of thorn in his flesh. And I've had people say, it was eye disease. You're reading way too much in a few comments made in scripture. Uh, it, it seems to be worse than that. But Paul also had some physical issues. We don't know exactly what all those were, but, <coughs> excuse me, um, air quality alert inside and outside, I think. Um, we have a couple of contemporaneous uh, descriptions of Paul. You know, people who lived at the time and who would write later about Paul, and they said that, he was, he was rather short, 
uh, kind of hunched back. And we don't know what age they saw him, and it could have been he was straight as a young man, but that he had a um, balding head and had a, what we would call a nasal voice. And Paul's very upfront. He will be in this, in this book that he doesn't look good or sound good. So I would imagine Paul had some health issues. And he's saying, I'd rather be with Jesus. And you know, I've gotten to that point in life where I've said, I've watched so many people die. And I have uh, had the honor sometimes of being beside them when they died and the horror other times of seeing people die. And you, so I talked to God very bluntly saying, all right, I'm really ready when you are. If you want to take me out, you know, I'd love to see my grandkids grow up, but I know they're going to be fine. Their parents are fantastic. Their churches are amazing. They've got backup and they've got God. And so if, uh, if I need to go, just take me super quick. Um, you know, and, and so that I don't want to be, you know, 10 years in a nursing home. I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to drain my family's finances. I already have those kind of prayers, and that's exactly what's going on here, saying, I believe in you, God, and I believe that it is better to be with you than to be with be down here. And there'll come a time where you have to, I guess, really believe what you say you believe. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that we may receive us what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Um, there, it is a little disturbing, a couple of things he says in this chapter, uh, hint of a salvation by works. But if you read the entire corpus, the entire body of Paul's writings, you realize that's not what he's saying. Our faith should drive our behavior. What we believe he assumes will drive our behavior. Uh, and he, he assumes that our behavior reveals what we really believe. And that, my friend, is true. And then one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is right here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. Because this is what it's about, churches. Now, our safe harbor has, I think, just shy of 800 members. And these we, we do members uh, in a different way. And that is, if you want to be, you are. And... 800 doesn't even include the kids and the dogs and the like, but we have thousands and thousands who have not placed membership, but they join us every week watching. We get um, emails, we get WhatsApp messages and texts from them. It is, uh, it's just phenomenal, frankly. And one of the things we, ha we just hammer in is that we're not, we're not on our way to becoming the average church or the church that you're used to. I have, um, at this time, and God can change my mind, have zero interest in building a church building. Now, if somebody gives us land, will we build? No. No. I don't know that we want land, but we could resell it and then use the money to continue our work. And yes, pay a salary to me and to the workers behind the scenes, but also, and mainly, to serve the Lord by uh, doing charitable work, of which we do quite a lot. That's what we want to do. And if somebody donated us uh, an amazing building and an amazing place, that we might consider it. But I don't, that's not what our goal is. 
our goal is to do this, get into homes, get into ears through uh, earbuds, uh, through booms or whatever's out there. And so that you hear the word of God and you do this. What is it? Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. And he goes on, you know, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again. He's saying what we do, verse 14, Christ love compels us. I want you to feel the love of Christ compelling us through every lesson, every act, every gift. He died for all so that we don't live for ourselves, but we live for him. And here we go. Verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. So, Patrick, <clears throat> what do you think of this political community or that political community? Patrick, what do you think of about this color of person versus that color of person? Patrick, what do you think about uh, the rich versus the poor versus the middle class? Patrick, uh, what do you think about uh, how should we... How should we consider, what do you think about women? And what, oh, men, 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 what do you think about men? No, 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 we're not playing those games. Many of you have asked me questions and I've responded back to, that, to them, something like, I have no authority to make a statement on that. I'm not a judge, God is the judge. My responsibility is to love everybody. I cannot look at somebody from a worldly point of view and please God. Now, <clears throat> that said, I read uh, the autobiography of Jesse Owens back when I was in middle school. He, I had first come across him in some pictures of the Olympics that were held in Nazi Germany and how Hitler really thought his blue-eyed, blonde-haired Aryan champion warriors would uh, just trample the world. And here comes this African-American, Jesse Owens, and just wipes the field and does so with grace and seems to be effortless doing it. Just amazing. And I love the book. <clears throat> and Jess, I don't know when Jesse Owens wrote the book. I would assume it was somewhere in the 60s. I should have looked that up before this class, shouldn't I? But I remember something he said. He said, don't tell me that when you see me, you don't see a black man. The term African-American really wasn't being used in the 60s and 70s. So he said, <clears throat> don't tell me that you don't see me and the first thing you see is black. Because, because when I see a person, I notice their color too. It's what we do after we notice the color. Then we notice that's a man or that's a woman or that's tall or they're small or they're dressed nicely or they're not. He said, then you start noticing all the other things. He says, I do it, you do it. It would be a lot better for us all if we just said so. And we're more concerned about what happened next. There are some people that would call me racist for saying that, but I found more and more people on all sides of these issues are coming to, we really gotta stop claiming to be colorblind because we're not. It's what happens next. So I see you and the receptors on my optic nerve are going to, going to flash me information. You know, that is a white man, that is a black woman, that is a telephone pole. I need that kind of information. 
Now, what do I do next? You love the white man. You love the black woman. You steer your car around the telephone pole. It's the decisions you make after you see. So we now look upon, no, regard is not a spotted them in passing. Regarding <clears throat> is a re-assessment, a re, in other words, we've already had the initial. Now we're processing the larger bulk of our knowledge, All right? It's the what happens next. He says, we, we once regarded Christ in this way, but we don't do that anymore. You, you know, Paul's just saying, I, I looked at, Paul, at Jesus and thought, uh, itinerant rabbi causing problems among the Jews, and I'm a Jew and a Pharisee, and it's time we stamp that guy out. He goes, well, we don't look at him that way anymore. Was he a Jew and a rabbi, itinerant? And yes, but we regarded him. We went past initial, and we saw who he really was. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. We are not longing for a better place. We are in a better place, and therefore we make a better place. We're already there. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us. Again, remember just a few verses before about the naked thing? We were shamed and away. He is bringing us back. Reconciled, reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them because they were obedient and believed the right things. Oh, wait, that's not in there. God declared peace on earth and he never changed that declaration. He said goodwill toward men and he never took that back. God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Some people expand that a bit and say to be a sin offering. I believe the manuscripts just say sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are the righteousness of God because the people of the world will not see the righteousness of God. Nah, they won't recognize it unless they see it in us. They'll see the righteousness of God by his provision, by um, his love in their life, and through the beauty of the world, through his artistic majesty and the way he made the place. But they probably won't understand that. And if they hear of a God, they're going to assume that their sins are going to keep them from him, not knowing that God sent Christ out to show us he's not counting our sins against us. He's calling us to him and saying, join in the work. So what is the work of our Safe Harbor Church? <clears throat> what should be the work of every church, regardless of name or peculiar sets of beliefs? What should be the purpose of every church? To reconcile people to God, to tell them the good news. Their sins are not being counted against them 
God loves them and calls them into a warm, close, personal relationship with him as a community. He doesn't, he's not, he doesn't call us as individuals so much as, as a member of a community, we are called. Patrick, yes, he called Patrick, but he didn't call me to be the Lone Ranger. I'm to be now part of the community of Christ. And our community in our safe harbor is mainly virtual, but people can come to the soundstage anytime they want to with the COVID up and downs and the reality of travel and such, most people are very content to stay at home and to be among trusted individuals. Uh, perhaps they know <clears throat> these people are well and healthy. Uh, they're in their circles. And so they, they meet there. But what happens in the age of post COVID? Well, you know, frankly, the virus doesn't go away. It'll continually mutate like all viruses do. But regardless of that, when we get back to a norm, are we then just going to abandon this and all go to our individual buildings? That's not our job. Our job is to reconcile people to God and give them the good news. And you can't do that in a building very well because frankly, it's like a farmer going into his house, slinging seed up against the wall and then wondering why the fields aren't growing corn. We gotta be out there in our homes, in our communities, in our cars, at work, at the gym, we listen, but then we act like the people we say we believe we are to be. All right. God bless you. Next week, we'll get into some uh, other heavy stuff and, and joyful stuff out of uh, Second Corinthians. Have a blessed.